Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. In our last installment, John discussed the preparation of his initial opening statement to the jury, as well as his negotiations with the defense over pretrial stipulations, including the stipulation that Robert Durst wrote the cadaver note. In this episode, Lewin explains how he and his team approached sequencing the witness testimonies in the trial. He also assesses a couple of key strategic mistakes by the defense and then discusses the impact of the first few witnesses who took the stand, including the dramatic direct examination of Robert Durst's brother, Thomas. That's all coming up right after the break. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. And sometimes, if you hear heavy traffic rushing by or the sound of footsteps, that's because John is doing the call during one of his early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial that John describes, at the end of this episode, I will list the episodes from the Jury Duty podcast that cover these parts of the trial. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. So we're going to start now with the trial. And the witnesses that you called before the pandemic. And let's start with the witnesses around the discovery of Susan's body. You called Susan's neighbors, Marvin Karp, Sandra Garfield, Catherine Shaw Cutter, and the police that discovered her body. Take me through your crafting of that narrative through the witness testimony. Well, I think the first thing to explain is what the purpose was in the order. So, as I think we've discussed, we had a plan from the start of what this case was going to be. And that plan was laid out in opening statements. The, all the various areas that we talked about, Bob's upbringing, Bob's situation with his with work, Kathy, who she is, Bob and Kathy, Bob and Susan originally. Anyway, I'm not going to go through it all now, but we had a very detailed plan, and we followed it in opening. And the great thing about opening is, opening is the one time in a case where you guarantee the order that things are presented in. Once you start trial, you have issues with witnesses. You have issues with pandemics. And so opening is the one time you can put it in order. Now, we wanted to start, when we did opening, one of the things that we did 
normally in a case, I, I like to tell a detailed story chronologically. So meaning, typical case, you know, no body spousal. I start with who the couple was, how they met. It's all happy. Here's the pictures. Turns out things were not great in paradise. You know, here's evidence of domestic violence. Here's evidence of adultery. Here's who the victim was. She was a wonderful mother. She's planning her kid's birthday party, and now she disappears. I like to let it build up. So by the time the victim disappears, the jury's going, okay, the husband did it, just because that's the logical narrative of the story. This case was so long, so many years, so many homicides, that we decided to actually start it with a very brief tip, a very brief synopsis of Susan. So we started out of order with the discovery of her body, you know, the 911 call. That's where we decided to start it. Let's let the jury understand this is the murder you're going to be here to solve. This is what happened, and then we're going to take you both backwards and forwards in the opening. So what does that mean? Well, it means we started with the fact that Susan, I think the first slide, if I remember, and I'm going by memory, was, you know, we're talking about who Bob is very briefly. We describe him, maybe seven, eight slides, who he is, and then, boom, Susan's murder, and we the 911 call. So the witnesses were calling. Well, we know that we've got to get in the witnesses who put Susan, give us a timeline of the death. Now, Bob has already stipulated that he found the body, but we want to make sure that we can demonstrate that she had to have been dead between roughly 10.30 p.m. on December 22nd and 9 a.m. on the 23rd when the dogs were loose. So that meant calling the neighbors. The 911 call was very eerie. And one of the things that you can do when you're telling a story like this is that you're listening to the characters talk about what happened. You know, even the jury knows how it ends, but they don't. So in real time is the call from the neighbor saying, hey, she can't get a hold of Susan. You know, she's probably fine. Maybe she just, you know, hit her head, you know, she's a little bit older, you never know. It's an apologetic call to 911, basically saying, and I'm sorry to bother you, but, you know, I'm worried. I'm sure it's nothing. Now, we all know, even the jury, it's not nothing because she's dead inside. So we started with those witnesses. Now, there was going to be almost no cross-examination of those witnesses at all. We knew that. These were not issues that were in dispute. So we wanted to get those witnesses done. Some of them were also elderly. And as an example, Dr. Karp had not testified at conditional examination. So we wanted to make sure we got him done. So we do each of the neighbors, and then we want to do the officer who comes to the scene. That was an issue more of just that was the right time. We want to basically, early on, before they know anything, the jury to understand this was not a robbery, this was not a burglary, this was not a sex crime. This was a targeted murder of Susan. And once you knew that, the possible suspects were very limited because of who she was, her paranoia about security. We also wanted to get the coroner done. We wanted to get the coroner done because he was in the process. Mark Fajardo was the coroner of Los Angeles when we started reinvestigating the case. He was the coroner here. He's phenomenal. The original coroner who did the case had long retired, was not available. So I asked Mark to go back and review all of the autopsy records so he could testify. He was important because he was going to end up setting 
not just the time of death relatively, but also he was going to end up being able to say that Susan was basically shot execution style. It's almost a contact wound in the back of her head. So we wanted to get him done. We got the officer done. The other issue that we knew that was coming, and we knew this, so when we started picking a jury, we were very concerned with COVID, and especially I was very concerned with COVID. I anticipated that we were going to have a break in the proceedings. I was just waiting for it. I thought that break would maybe be a couple of weeks, at worst, a month. So that would, But because of that, I wanted, I was the one pushing for as many alternates as possible. Now, if you think about it, if the defense would have been on their game, they should have tried to have as few alternates as possible. Because remember, they wanted a mistrial from the very beginning, even during jury selection. They were making motions for mistrials. They knew it wasn't going well. They knew that they had erred with the questionnaire. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now we return to my conversation with John Lewin as he describes his team's priorities in sequencing the witnesses in the trial. As we resume, Lewin is noting a key strategic error by the defense in their crafting of the questionnaire that was used as part of the jury screening process. The questionnaire was terrible for them. This is extremely important. One of the big failings that the defense made was that they believed that if jurors knew about Morris Black and had seen the jinx, that they would automatically be kicked. All right? That's what they believed. Now, it was a foolish and erroneous belief for this reason. There was not one piece of evidence that the jurors were aware of from the jinx, not one piece, that wasn't going to come in during the trial. So the risk that you have, and the better argument they'd be able to make is, hey, listen, in the jinx, I'll just give you an example. They talked about, which they didn't, they talked about Bob Durst being a serial killer and killing a bunch of young women in Northern, in Northern California, Vermont. That was an allegation that was out there. I never took it seriously at all. But let's assume the jinx had discussed that. That evidence is not going to come in at trial. So the defense would have been well within their right to say, hey, listen, Your Honor, if any juror is aware of those allegations, they need to be kicked. They didn't even bring it up. They didn't even ask to, let's, let's ask this question outside of the other juror's presence. Or let's have a question saying, are any of you aware of any allegations outside of the Morris Black and Kathy Durst involving Bob Durst. As far as I know, I don't know of any juror who knew anything about these allegations of Bob and these other women. But if they had, we'd never know because they never asked. So what they decided to do then was since they had the erroneous belief that if jurors knew about Morris Black and knew about Kathy Durst, particularly Morris Black, and if they'd seen the jinx, that they would be kicked. So what they did was, is they agreed to have the jurors in the questionnaire given a summary that described everything, all right? And their view was, and they wanted this, we're going to basically in the questionnaire make Bob sound like a homicidal maniac. 
if you remember, literally the question here, and my favorite line was, you know, we gave a synopsis of what, you know, the, the people who put on evidence that Bob Durst, you know, murdered and dismembered, you know, Morris Black. You know, the defense will argue blah, blah, blah. The final thing about Morris Black was his head was never found. That's in the, he's dismembered, his head's never found. That's in the questionnaire, the summary that the jurors are given. And the defense believed that, in essence, we're going to say all these horrible things about Bob Durst. We're going to make them think he's a homicidal maniac. And then we're going to ask, literally, the next question is, does the fact that Bob Durst dismembered Morris Black's body, the question some of the effect of, does that in any way demonstrate his guilt in, you know, in the charge defense? Carrie, of course, common sense is, of course it does. Of course it does. The question, though, is not whether or not when you hear that you end up thinking Bob is guilty. The question is, are you going to base your decision on that? Are you going to base your decision on the evidence? So they had two giant, giant strategic errors. The first error was thinking that if they put that evidence out there, if jurors knew about it, they'd be able to get rid of them, which turned out not to be true. And the reason that turned out not to be true, and the judge understood this and was very receptive to our arguments. Originally, the judge and the defense were much more interested in kicking every juror who expressed negative comments about Bob Durst. And my position was, wait a minute, you can't say in the questionnaire, Bob Durst did all these horrible things. And then say any juror who responds to that by going, yep, we're going to kick them. You can't do that. You can't, in essence, manufacture your own cause challenge. And eventually, Judge Wyndham agreed with us. So that backfired on them. So this, and, and the reason that it backfired on them, which the judge understood was, it goes back to my first point, all of that evidence was going to come in at trial anyway. So the only difference is, does the juror know about it before we start? Or do they learn about it during the trial? The result is the same. So that was a giant tactical mistake by the defense, and that put us in the position that we were in with a jury that was very good for us, and they knew it. So that's why they wanted a mistrial even during jury selection. Now, if they had been smarter, what they would have done is they would have argued for less alternates because had they had – let's think about it. Let's say you had only six alternates on this case. Well, that meant we would have been down – at the end of this trial, we would have been done. We lost seven, so we would have had a mistrial. But they didn't do that. So how does that figure into this? Well, it also figures into it because we knew that the pandemic was coming and we had done our homework. Now, we didn't think it was going to be anywhere near, you know, 14 months. We thought a couple of weeks, et cetera. We wanted to put on evidence before the pandemic that, was, that the defense could not argue was going to be prejudicial to their clients. What does that mean? Well, that means you want to put on evidence that's not in dispute. So what I mean by that is you can argue what it means, what's the evidentiary value of Dr. Marvin Karp's observations or Sharif's observations, but you can't argue with the observations themselves. So that means in the end there's no prejudice. That is different than putting on something which you are saying isn't true and then being able to argue, well, that's staying in the jurors' minds all through the break. So when you go through it, the evidence we put on, that had to do with the crime scene, the coroner. None of that was, was debatable. None of that was in dispute. The other evidence that we put on had to do with Kathy, the domestic violence between Bob and Kathy. That was we put on her family, Jimmy and Jeannie, Kathy's family, 
We put on Anna Anderson Doyle from Australia. We put on Dr. Marion Watlington, and we put on uh, Tim Varian, the detective, uh, who came out and interviewed. And finally, we put on Tom Durst. All of those things went to issues that were not in dispute. So that's why we put that on before the pandemic. We knew the last day of, of trial was March 12th. And we were trying to just get through, if you remember, the pandemic was heating up. We had witnesses who did not want to come testify. We knew that Tom Durst had, was going to be a problem, and we wanted to make sure that we got him as early as possible because even once the pandemic started and got worse, it was going to be more difficult. So that was the reason and the order for the witnesses that we called. Tell me a bit more about the Tom Durst testimony and wrangling that and whether you were surprised by where he went emotionally in that testimony. So Tom Durst is terrified of Bob. He always has been. Tom was the youngest brother. He was a baby. His earliest memories of Bob are being mistreated. He is sincerely and honestly terrified of Bob. And Tom is a very kind, timid person. And so it was very difficult to get him down here. We had to deal with his lawyers. It was very problematic. I knew that Tom was going to be able to provide good information. And one of the important things Tom was going to testify to was going to be some of the incidents of domestic violence with Bob. And when I say domestic violence, when you are lifting up your wife's clothing in front of somebody else, even though that's not a violent act. You cannot have a more degrading, dehumanizing. He's basically saying to his brother, I own this woman. I'll do whatever I want of her to her. Doesn't matter what's appropriate. Doesn't matter what the norms are. And that was important because we needed to explain what the relationship was. We also had the situation in San Francisco. We had the food stamp stuff. We had Bob ending up um, having the incident where he came out. Even, I think Tom testified to it, Bob came out and basically kicked Tom out of his bed. Tom had to sleep on his couch. That's the relationship that Bob had. Also, we had uh, Kathy asking Tom for money. So Tom had a lot of important stuff about the relationship between Bob and Kathy. Now, I knew all that was going to come in. What I did not expect was when I had talked to Tom, Tom was a very timid, kind of mellow person. So what shocked me was the way that he told the story, where all of a sudden it's almost like he got possessed and Bob gets inside of his head and he's like reliving it from 30, 40 years ago. I was not expecting that. Now, it's interesting. Within my team, there were some lawyers who thought that that was not effective, that Tom was putting it on. That was not my belief. I believe it was completely sincere, and I believe that it was very, very effective. That's not a, a unanimous viewpoint within our team. But So I was surprised that Tom actually, you know, responded that way. I, I never would have thought that was going to happen. The jurors that we talked to found it very effective. In fact, the only two things that they really remembered from the testimony that happened before the pandemic break were Tom Durst's testimony and his emotional outburst describing Bob Durst yelling at him in one instance and trapping him in a revolving door at a building in Manhattan. Those two moments made a huge impact on the two jurors that we spoke with.
in speaking to the jurors myself, what's interesting, and a lot of times they don't even know that you're setting a thing. So not one juror has mentioned Dr. Marion Watlington. But I know that her testimony was very helpful because what it did was is it set out a theme of Bob abusing, demeaning Kathy, of Kathy being qualified, et cetera. And so what happens with jurors is that over time, they don't even necessarily remember what it was that caused them to feel certain ways, to look at the case certain ways. They don't even remember. All they're left with is, well, after that first week, you know, I had a feeling that Bob, you know, was a really violent person towards Kathy. So I've learned it's not about, oh, do you remember the specific incident that Dr. Marion Watlington talked about? It doesn't matter. What matters is, was the theme of that testimony that you heard that Bob was violent, that it was serious, that it was demeaning, that it was dehumanized. So that's why I never care when a witness later on can't remember the specifics. I'd wager most jurors couldn't really tell you which of the medical students said, you know, the most convincing argument about why Kathy would have certainly called someone in her rotation. But every one of them will tell you, oh, hey, after that testimony and those stipulations, was there any doubt in your mind that Kathy, if she would have called in sick, A, she wouldn't have called in, she wouldn't have called the dean, but even if she was going to call in sick, she would have called a rotation. Every one of them will tell you, absolutely even though most don't remember the particulars. Well, they definitely remembered Ann Anderson Doyle, and they remembered Ann Anderson Doyle describing Kathy as like a shivering dog. Did you anticipate that she would have that kind of impact on the jury? Yeah, 100%. So we, I had spoken to her. You know, remember, every single witness that, take, that took the stand, I had spoken to most of them in multiple conversations. I knew what they were like. I knew how they would present. I, I had a good idea of what their emotional connection would be. So, yeah, that was absolutely correct. We knew she was going to be what she was. We thought she was, and she was terrific. So, yeah, n no surprise. There were no, literally in this entire trial, there were no surprises. Everybody came off how we thought they were going to come off. Now, again, there were times, and this is where there can be a lot of pressure. I was the lead lawyer on the case. Now, I tend to listen to what everybody will tell me. And if they can convince me when I disagree with them that I'm wrong, I'll change. And that happened. But there were a lot of times where it was four and five to one on an issue. And I had to say I was the one. You know what? I'm going to, guys, I got to do it this way. One of those issues were there were several witnesses that my team were very worried about calling. And, and I don't want to identify those witnesses, but I will just tell you that a few of them were, were some of the best witnesses in the case. And the question was, I don't think they're going to do well. This person, you know, we don't know what they're going to say. How are they going to respond on the stand? And my position was always, what they're saying, do we believe it? Absolutely. Does the evidence support it? Absolutely. So any statement, any errors that they made, any problems they have, that it really goes to presentation and to bullshit arguments by the other side. In other words, what they're saying happens. So trust the jurors and trust the witness. They'll do okay. And every witness, we didn't have a, I mean, you have to ask yourself, we didn't have a bad witness in this entire case. We had good witnesses, great witnesses, and phenomenal witnesses. And by the way, that's going to include 
the witnesses that were sympathetic to the defendant. Some of those witnesses were our best witnesses in the entire trial, the most important. And obviously, the most important witness in this entire trial was Bob Durst, you know, followed probably closely by Nick Chabon as a witness. Now, in terms of the importance in the trial, the most important witness was Emily Altman because of how she altered the game plan. Going back to Marion Watlington for a second, refresh our memory. What was the critical aspect of her testimony? So Dr. Watlington had been a nurse who had become a doctor. So she took the same path as Kathy. She was a few years older, and she was Kathy's nursing professor at Western Connecticut. So she was kind of the role model and mentor for Kathy. They became good friends, and Marion was very supportive of Kathy. Marion, one of the big things that Marion talked about was what a star Kathy was, how she outshined all the other students in her class. So that narrative was meant to be a counterattack to the bullshit that Kathy didn't deserve to go to medical school, that Seymour got her in, et cetera. So that's the first thing that she did. The other thing that she did was Kathy was telling her, they were having late-night conversations, and Kathy was telling her about the domestic violence, and Marion was trying to get her to leave. Marion also called very early on. She called NYPD, and they never did anything. They never followed up with her, et cetera. So Marion was important because she provided a narrative of not only who Kathy was and not only about the domestic violence, but she was the first witness that was able to attack the horrific job that was done by NYPD. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next episode as John discusses the 14-month hiatus in the trial and the steps he and his team took to keep the case alive during the uncertainty of the coronavirus pandemic. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial described by John Lewin in this episode, you can find our coverage of Thomas Durst's testimony in Season 2, Episode 9, and Ann Anderson Doyle's appearance on the stand can be found in Season 2, Bonus Episode 2. You can also find the juror's experience of this portion of the trial in Season 2, Bonus Episode 17. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.